Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens? Beautiful people everywhere. It's your girl, CK McGee, and I am your host. How's everybody doing? I pray that you are all doing well, of course, as usual. I cannot believe it, but we have come to the end of another season. Where has the time gone? I cannot tell you all enough how much I appreciate your support. I so enjoy putting the show on for you each and every week. And it is exciting to see all the different places that you are all listening from. So I would like to give some shout outs to Virginia, California, Georgia, Maryland, New Jersey, Texas, Colorado, and of course, my own home state of New York. Thank you all so very much for tuning in and for showing your support each and every week. I truly, truly appreciate it. Now last week, Village, we were shocked to hear about the unexpected passing of a very talented actor by the name of Michael K. Williams. Now the first time that I saw him was in his groundbreaking role as Omar Little on The Wire. I used to love that show. And of course he went on to play other roles in shows like Boardwalk Empire, movies like 12 Years a Slave, When They See Us, as well as other roles that he simply made his own. In his career, he received five Primetime Emmy Award nominations. According to a DNA analysis, he was a descendant from the Mende people of Sierra Leone. Now, did you know that he actually appeared as a dancer in music videos? You know, with artists such as George Michael and Madonna. And he even choreographed Crystal Waters' hit in 1994, you know that song, 100% Pure Love? Mm-hmm. Now, one of his first acting roles was with the late, great Tupac Shakur in the film Bullet. It was said that Tupac picked him after seeing a Polaroid of the actor. He also served as the American Civil Liberties Union celebrity ambassador to the Campaign for Smart Justice. With the roles that he took, he reminded us of the importance of diverse on-screen representation. He was just 50 year, 54 years old, excuse me, 54 years old. And I tell you, he will be greatly missed. I still am, I find myself stunned, I think, to this very moment, right? I don't know. It's just amazing. You never know uh, when, you know, our time will come, um, but, you know, we take this moment to celebrate his, his short time here with us. We appreciate everything that he brought you know, to his craft. And we hope that you will rest in power, King. Now, Village, for the first time this evening, we're going to be taking a walk to my musical jukebox, right? Now, this first song from the jukebox was actually dedicated to Michael Brown, the African-American teen who was killed 
by Ferguson, Missouri police officer Darren Wilson on August 9, 2014. The song calls for equality, using that tragedy as a means to incite change. Here's One Love by L. Varner.
was the staple singers with when will we be paid that's a good question the song is asking for reparations for the exploitation of african americans throughout the majority of american history and that song was actually covered by prince in 2001 well village you know me i like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things whether it be about current events, entertainment, or something that's just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called Let's Talk About It. Now, Village, over this past weekend, we commemorated the 20th anniversary 
of the 9-11 attacks, which were a series of four coordinated attacks by the militant Islamic terrorist group Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda. Presidents Biden, Obama, and Clinton, along with our First Lady and former First Ladies, were present at this year's ceremony in New York City. Now, the first plane to hit its target was American Airlines Flight 11. It was flown into the North Tower of the World Trade Center complex in Lower Manhattan at 8.46 a.m. 17 minutes later at 9.03 a.m., the World Trade Center's South Tower was hit by United Airlines Flight 175. Both 110-story towers collapsed within an hour and 42 minutes, leading to the collapse of the other World Trade Center structures, including seven World Trade Center and significantly damaging surrounding buildings within the area. Third flight, which was American Airlines Flight 77, flown from Dulles International Airport, was hijacked over Ohio at 9.37 a.m. It crashed into the west side of the Pentagon, which is the headquarters for the American military in Arlington County, Virginia, causing a partial collapse of the building's side. The fourth and final flight, United Airlines Flight 93, was flown in the direction of Washington, D.C., but the plane's passengers attempted to regain control of the aircraft, trying to take it away from the, um, excuse me, from the hijackers. And ultimately, they diverted the plane from its intended target. It crashed into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania at 10.03 a.m. So this is definitely one of those times in our history when a catastrophic event such as this happens, right? And you'll always be able to remember where you were or what you were doing. And I remember that I was off that day from work. And I just happened to turn on the TV, maybe just after the first plane hit. And I was still kind of like half awake, right? And I remember thinking, what the heck is this? You know, is this some kind of like movie trailer or something that's going on? It wasn't until I really woke up and started to like pay attention that I realized that this was no movie trailer and that it was an unbelievable and devastating reality. My eyes were glued to the screen for what seemed like months afterwards as I took in the fact that thousands of innocent people lost their lives. There were people jumping out of windows, running from the enormous clouds of dust after the towers collapsed to then witnessing how New Yorkers and people all around the country came together in unity. I know that I do not have to go into, you know, any more details because you all are aware of them already. But one thing that I will say is that each year, as long as I have been able, I always pay my respects by watching the ceremony that honors those who lost their lives that day. And I have to tell you the truth, I will never tire of doing that because they were our brothers and our sisters. And in my mind, it's the least that I can do. And there were like two things that really struck me as I watched the ceremony this year. One was to see how old they would have been had they not been involved in that devastating attack, right? You're talking about people who would have been in there their 60s, their 70s. I think I saw someone who would have been 99 years old had they survived that attack, you know? And then also, um, 
I watch the ceremonies every year, but you know how sometimes I get you can be distracted for a second or two. And I never realized the children that were on board, you know? So seeing like 11 year olds and their names being read was like, wow, to me. Um, you know, so just kind of like seeing how life has gone on. You always recognize the fact that there are children that are up there at the podium who are reading these names now, who either uh, were babies at the time or who weren't even born, but because their families, you know, continue to uh, make sure to keep the legacy of those that they lost alive, these young ones, and you can see are actually, you know, impacted you know, by the day and its significance, right? Now, I know that I had the opportunity early on to visit Ground Zero. And then, praise God, years later, my mom and I were able to go to the memorial site as well as the 9-11 Museum. And it was a beautiful experience. I still have pictures. I know that she and I will never forget it, right? So to all the families of the victims that were lost that day, your courage and your bravery is something that I very much admire and I have a great deal of respect for. I will continue to keep you and your loved ones in my heart always. Okay, beautiful people, with September being Suicide Prevention Month, I think it's necessary to highlight the impact of mental illness and what we can do to watch out for the people that we love. Now, millions of people are affected by suicide each year, with mental uh, well-being so profoundly affected by the coronavirus pandemic. You know, you've been hearing a lot of that lately. The National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month is even perhaps more relevant this year than ever before. Now, you know, we can bring all kinds of attention to this month by sharing it on social media and other digital platforms. So here are some facts that are given to us according to the Center for Disease Control, um, the CDC. Now, in 2019, there were an estimated 1.38 million attempts in the United States and more than 47,000 people who died. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States with an average of 130 deaths per day. Between the ages of 10 and 34, self-destruction is the second leading cause of death. 78% of deaths are from males, right? I think we mentioned last week that even though more women may attempt suicide, more men die by suicide, right? The overall rate in the U.S. has gone up 35% since 1999. 48% of people who die by suicide have a diagnosed mental illness, such as depression or other emotional health issues. So once again, what is National Suicide Prevention Month? Um, in the month of September, it's time to remember everyone impacted. Time to raise awareness about the suicidal crisis because it is a crisis. And by raising awareness, we can affect efforts by connecting the people who need it most with potentially, with potentially life-saving treatments 
for mental illness. It's not something that should go ignored, you know? Throughout the month, advocates for mental health, like myself, mental health organizations that focus on prevention, survivors, allies, and community members come together talking about suicide for awareness. They provide shareable resources and provide mental health education. So what we want to do is we want to shed more light on the reality that is suicide and perhaps promote hope and healing at the same time. If we do not avoid the subject, it could be that you're able to connect with someone at a time when they're feeling most vulnerable and you can make a life-saving impact on their life. Mental illness shouldn't be taboo or stigmatized and we should be talking about it every chance we get really because by talking about it, people can get access to the resources that they need for prevention and help. Attempting suicide is a public health concern for all of us, but treatment options are available to lower death rates. However, we do need public participation to make a difference in suicide prevention. So it's important that we all take time to learn about, you know, important factors such as like risk factors or who may be, you know, most vulnerable to it. Um, so that we can be on the lookout, you know, we can have a listening ear to the things that someone around us might be saying. Maybe you're noticing some some patterns. So let's let's get into that. You know, many people who are thinking about suicide, they ex they exhibit one or more warning signs. Okay, and those warning signs may be one of the following: they're actually talking about killing themselves. They're feeling hopeless feeling trapped, they're indicating that they feel like a burden to other people. You may notice increased use of drugs or alcohol, withdrawing from activities or family and friends. They're either sleeping a lot or they're sleeping too little. You start noticing maybe they're telling people goodbye, giving away possessions, showing aggression, fatigue, loss of interest, anxiety, depression, humiliation, or shame. So it doesn't have to be like every single one, but it can be some of those. It could be all of them. That's why it's important for us to educate ourselves in order to be able to provide effective support to someone around us that may be struggling, right? You kind of have to step outside of yourself too, though. There's a lot of people, you know, they don't really want to be bothered, uh, but you never know how much of a difference it could make if you just show support and care and compassion to someone who's not doing well. Now, even seeming to suddenly feel relief or experiencing an improvement in mental or physical symptoms can in some cases be one of the warning signs to look out for. So if you know they've been struggling for a long, long time, you know, and, and they, they meet some of the criteria we just spoke about, then all of a sudden everything was like, oh my God, I feel so great. You know what? The world is my oyster. Yeah. You need to watch out for that too. Okay. In addition to risk, risk factors, there are also protective factors. Protective factors are actions that can make someone less likely to engage in suicidal behavior, and those include having effective mental and physical health care, as well as treatment for substance use disorders, okay? 
quick, easy access to clinical care and interventions, restricted access to tools of harm like firearms, connections to community and family support such as a social worker, problem solving and conflict resolution skills to improve life skills, and then religious and cultural beliefs also play a role in that, excuse me. <clears throat> so you might be asking yourself, well, what can I do? Well, if you're focusing on being an ally during this Suicide Prevention Month and outside of this month, it doesn't have to just be for the month of September. This is just a month where awareness is, is you know, um, given, but this is every day, all day, right? You may be wondering what you can do as it relates to the topic of suicide and awareness about suicide prevention. Well, first, watch for those warning signs I'm talking to you about, including any changes in mood or behavior. If someone, for example, stopped showing up to an activity they previously enjoyed, or they seem overly angry and frustrated, these can be warning signs, all right? You may be seeing your friends and family virtually more often because, you know, everything with COVID, it's not completely over. As much as people, you know, want to act like it is, it's not. We still have to take certain precautions. And if that is the case, then you have to think about how they're behaving in these spaces as well. So for example, maybe they're not responding to the family. You know, they're not really involved in the group chat. Or maybe they stopped FaceTiming you regularly. Maybe you guys used to talk like once or twice a week by FaceTime and they're not even doing that anymore, right? You can also proactively ask someone directly if they're okay in a confidential conversation. You don't have to put them on blast, you know, in front of everybody, but you can kind of like in a one-on-one conversation, just kind of check in and see how they're doing. Know that you care, check in often Someone with suicidal thoughts feels very alone. Yes, they do. I'm a witness. And a simple, are you okay, can go a long way to let them know that they're not alone, nor are they a burden to other people. You can also let your loved ones know if they need anything, you're there. And I'm telling you, if you're going to tell somebody that you're going to be there, then you need to make sure that you're going to be there. All right. That's the one time that you can't like, oops, I'm sorry. No, no, no. You tell them that you're going to be there, be there. Okay. You shouldn't be afraid to ask about suicide. I know that it probably makes you nervous. It's it's a hard subject, but don't be afraid because, you know, at the end of the day, think about the fact that we're talking about saving someone's life. Okay. So there's a tendency to think that if you ask about it directly, that you're planting an idea in someone's head but there's absolutely no research to support that theory. So get that out of your head, okay? When you have an honest conversation, questions such as whether or not they thought about suicide, it's going to open up the lines of communication in a new and vital way. If your loved one says that they thought about suicide, it doesn't always mean it's an emergency, but it may still be a challenging time requiring suicide prevention efforts. So immediate signs of crisis would be if someone says they are thinking of acting on their thoughts right away or within the next few days. 
again, it's all about like listening and engaging that person to kind of see like what's on their mind. And let's all remember in these moments, it's not about you. It's, it's not about you. It's not about what you think. It's not about what you believe. It's not about whether you think it's right or wrong. It's not about you at all. It's all about that individual and you need to be there for them, right? If you feel it's a mental health crisis, you should try to stay with the suicide, the suicidal person, you know, during that time. And you might also want to contact the prevention hotline or the veterans crisis hotline if that person uh, served in the military. Okay, so um, that that information, you know, if you look up the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number or the veteran um, prevention hotline number both of those numbers are available 24 7 confidential and that way you know whichever one of those you know scenarios is applicable in that moment then follow through with that option okay so I'm just saying that please 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 if you know someone who's around that you are maybe thinking could be in trouble, you would you would feel a lot better if you engage them and talk to them and show your support and compassion for them because it would make a world of difference to them and to you. Trust me when I tell you, it makes a world of difference when people know that they are cared for and cared about. So again, if you feel there's a mental health crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Or if they are a veteran, call the Veterans Crisis Hotline uh, if they served in the military. Now, Village, this next song was written and composed by Abel Maripol, and it was originally recorded in 1939. The lyrics were drawn from a poem by Maripol, which was published in 1937. The song protests the lynching of Black Americans with lyrics that compare the victims to the fruit of trees. Such lynchings had reached a peak in the Southern United States at the turn of the 20th century, and the great majority of victims were Black. The song has been called a declaration and the beginning of the civil rights movement. Now this song has been covered by many artists, including Nina Simone and Diana Ross, who recorded it for her debut film, the Billie Holiday um, biopic, Lady Sings the Blues in 1972. And by this artist who recorded it for her award-winning acting debut in the 2021 Billie Holiday biopic, The United States versus Billie Holiday. Here's Andre Day with Strange Fruit. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic. Bye. 
trees Their strange fruit Blood on the leaves And blood at the root Black bodies swinging village so let's get into today's topic now when i think about what it means to be black in america it means to be from a legacy of profound resilience a legacy of survival and a legacy of deep sorrow the hard truth is that the united states was built with white supremacy as its foundation and is still riddled with systemic injustice And that was said by Kirsten Nemo, who is the founder and managing director of Good Work, W-O-R-X, which is a social innovation consultancy. Race 
was created and used to create challenges for Black people that have persisted for over 400 years. Now, this past June, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary changed the definition of racism to reflect systemic oppression, defining it as a political or social system founded on racism and designed to execute its principles. The change was made in response to the death of George Floyd and the demands of activists to include the nuance of systemic racism in the definition. Now, Black America Village is multifaceted, which of course we all know this, with a rich history of resilience and creation of new cultural traditions while still being subjected to extreme acts of aggression and violence from slavery and beyond. Now, it's hard to find any people in the modern world who have been hated so intensely for 400 years. And one of the harshest examples of that kind of visceral hatred that I refer to is Black Wall Street, also referred to as the Black Holocaust and the Tulsa Race Massacre. So first, let's take a look at the significance of Black Wall Street, okay? Now, Black Wall Street was a platform that paved the way for Black communities and businesses to thrive. Not too long ago, at least before then, Black men and women were not allowed to own property. We faced violence and freedom restrictions, such as being stripped of the right to vote. Ding, 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 ding. Hmm. Which is exactly what they're trying to do today. Still in 2021. How about that? We also endured other forms of racial segregation and race-based legislation. Despite this, though, a sense of community and faith bloomed among Black neighborhoods where isolation and segregation was the norm. Black people gave each other a place for community, safety, and economic support. And 100 years later, Black communities were thriving and economic strength was established. A perfect example of this progress was Black Wall Street, which was located in the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Of course, you guys know that this is the 100th you know, year commemoration of Black Wall Street, and everybody's been talking about it all year long. And of course, you know, there's even a special that was on or that has been on that's following um, the progress of identifying um, people who basically have been missing ever since, you know, that why am I trying to find a nice word, you know, for this? Ever ever since that atrocity was committed against us. Like, I I, I don't even know really how else to, like, put it. And so they've been going about the business of, you know, um, digging up the mass grave where bodies were dumped and um, are supposed to be identifying them. So we're, we're kind of keeping an eye on that. But so everybody's been talking about Black Wall Street, you know, all year long. And I very well was not going to end my season, you know, without talking about it as well. So Black Wall Street, which was also known as Little Africa, was a thriving, there goes that word again, thriving community in Greenwood in the early 1900s. 
Now, this was a community that had bustling Black-owned businesses, theaters, schools, social health, and a strong distribution of wealth among its middle and upper classes. Reports estimate the community had more than 10,000 African-American residents, and most of them were what? Thriving, yes. Black, Black Wall Street was the epitome of a self-sustaining community and strength. Black people supported each other, which allowed for easier access to resources, savings, housing, jobs, education, and health. Black Wall Street was just one of the many thriving communities in the United States, but it also became a site that would serve as an example of the violence and hatred that grew out of greed from white financial interests. Now, as Black Wall Street thrived and grew, so did greed in oil-thirsty America. In 1897, just a few years before Black Wall Street was established, Oklahoma got its first oil well. While this discovery is praised for establishing economic wealth and stability in Oklahoma during the Great Depression, no less, it attracted scores of exploration companies in the 1920s. And this oil discovery gave Black people the economic opportunity that they needed. Now, we weren't allowed at that time to shop at white-owned stores and businesses. So the money that was spent went right back into our own communities. Oil gave rise to opportunities and economic freedoms for Black people. And that was despite the fact that Oklahoma's status was a segregated state. So as you can imagine, envy and jealousy thrived. Man, dog, there's that word again. Now, the thought of second-class citizens receiving better economic opportunities than their white neighbors infuriated white Oklahoma residents. They retaliated against the Black community by spreading hatred, accusing them of crimes, and many white people were full of loathing and wanted to bring Black communities down. You know, kind of like they still feel like that today, you know, where there's any kind of forward progress, we got to make sure to, you know, keep them in their place. They're not supposed to be able to have the advantages and opportunities that we have. And I'm only referring to those white people who think like that. If you don't think like that, good for you. But then how about doing us a favor and talk to your friends who do? How about that? An accusation of sexual assault was the match that ignited the smoldering hatred and resentment of the thriving Black Wall Street community. The accusation inspired a lynch mob, which included nearly 2,000 Ku Klux Klan members who wanted to get, quote unquote, justice. So here's how it went down. On the morning of May 30th, 1921, after a young Black man named Dick Rowland, who worked by Shining Shoes, he, he needed to use the restroom, but because he was Black, he was not permitted to use the restroom where he worked. So the man that he worked for made arrangements for a segregated public restroom to be made available in what they called the Drexel Building, which was down the street from where he worked. Now, in order to get to that restroom, he needs to access the elevator, which was operated by a young white woman by the name of Sarah Page. Okay? 
Now, there is one account that says as he entered the elevator, he lost his balance and to break his fall, he reached out. And in reaching out, he accidentally grabbed the edge of her dress, which tore, and she screamed. Roland fled the elevator and rumors quickly spread of an alleged sexual assault. The next day, he was arrested, leading to an armed confrontation outside the courthouse between a growing white crowd and black men hoping to defend Roland from being lynched. As things became heated and shots were fired, the vastly outnumbered African-Americans retreated to the Greenwood district. The white group followed, and as the night unfolded, violence exploded. Throughout that night and into June 1st, much of Greenwood became enveloped in billowing dark smoke as members of the mob went from house to house and store to store, looting and then torching buildings. I'm sorry, did that say looting? You mean the same thing that during Black Lives Matter movements when they're protesting silently and, you know, there are some bad apples in the bunch that loot stores? You mean how they're always complaining about how terrible it is that you would do that to somebody else's property? You know, what about all that they did to, to you know, make that possible and taking care of the families? Oh, you mean, are, are you saying that same kind of looting? But they were looting and torching buildings. And guess what? Fleeing residents were sometimes shot down in the street. So if you were in your house or you were in a store and they were looting and setting it on fire, when you ran out into the street, they shot you dead in the street. And many survivors report low-flying planes, some of them raining down bullets or inflammables. Hmm. Now, I don't hear about stuff like that at Black Lives Matter movements. I, don't, I mean, unless I'm not listening to the whole report. I, I don't hear that. But wow, that's what happened that night? Mm. Now, among the many buildings looted and torched, by the white mob was the Mount Zion Baptist Church, an impressive brick structure that had opened its doors less than two months earlier. It was one of the numerous houses of worship destroyed in the massacre. No respect, no respect at all for our religion, our religious buildings, nothing, right? Our lives, our businesses. To add insult to injury, by noon of June 1st, Oklahoma Governor Robertson declared martial law and sent in the Oklahoma National Guard. Officials arrested and detained thousands of Black Tulsans, shepherding them to the local convention center and fairgrounds. They were rounded up. They rounded up the Greenwood Black residents, deeming them to be the primary threat to law and order instead of any members of the white mob who had murdered and pillaged. Indeed, for decades after, the incident was erroneously, or was it, characterized as a race as a race riot. I can't even say it because it's bull. Because they were basically implying that it had been instigated by the Black community. No one, and I do mean no one, has ever been held accountable for the destruction or loss of life. After being rounded up under martial law, traumatized Greenwood residents were kept under armed guard, some for hours, some for days, only to be released, okay, if they were vouched for by an employer or a white citizen. Now, I've read accounts 
where they actually made postcards of the people that they shot to death or burned alive in the streets. They actually made postcards of, of those events. Like, really? Now, according to the 2001 Tulsa Race Riot Commission report, the most comprehensive review of the massacre in the year after the attacks, Tulsa residents filed riot-related claims against the city, which were valued at over $1.8 million. But the city commission, like insurance companies, denied most of the claims, with one exception. And that was for a white business owner who received compensation because guns was taken from his shop. In November 1921, with millions in property damage, I think they said, um, I read somewhere, it could have been like $30 million in property damage. And no help at all from the city. The rebuilding of Greenwood, nonetheless, began almost immediately see it remember what i said in the beginning what our legacy is right that resilience and and even though we have that deep sorrow we just we just keep getting up we just keep rising we we keep rising okay many black tulsa residents they did flee the city they fled and they never returned but many stayed and started from scratch some housed in red cross tents until they could rebuild their homes. And later, community landmarks like the Dreamland Theater, okay? Now, in 2001, again, the Tulsa Race Right Commission report recommended that survivors be paid reparations. And they called it a moral obligation, did they now? The pursuit of restoration, restitution, excuse me, continues. The massacre at Black Wall Street was one of the largest massacres of Black citizens in America. It is important not to forget the pride and opportunity that Black Wall Street awarded African Americans. They worked hard, built a strong community, and supported each other, circulating Black dollars within our community and doing business with one another is critical for our community's financial and economic strength. So now, Village, if you recall, a few weeks ago, I talked about five African-American business leaders who were asked if they thought that reparations would help in closing the racial wealth gap. And one of those business leaders was the CEO and founder of One United Bank, Evan Cohey. And he believes that we have a need for that today, which is why One United Bank is supporting the hashtag Bank Black movement. Banking Black gives citizens more opportunities than they would have anywhere else. And it puts our hard-earned dollars back where they belong, in the Black community, so that we can build the quote-unquote new Black Wall Street. We owe it to our ancestors who lost their lives and community that day. The Black Wall Street gave us the drive and the power to own our own financial institutions and allowed Black citizens to invest in each other. So One United Bank wants to be able to make that happen again. So hashtag bank black. Now I know a few people who do already, and maybe it's time that we all consider this as a viable option for us all.
So beautiful people. When asked about the meaning of this next song, Andra Day said that she was paying homage to Billie Holiday. She says, quote, if Billie Holiday were with us now, I believe she'd wanna see strange fruit evolved. And if strange fruit was a call to awareness, then Tigress and Tweed is a call to action because she laid the groundwork. She was definitely able to identify with using music as a form of activism and went on to say that the lyrics finally came to me like a flood after a prayer one day. I hope people are strengthened by truth and love when they hear it. This song was nominated for a 2021 Golden Globe Award for best song from the film, The United States versus Billie Holiday. And speaking of Billie Holiday, he was also known as the godmother of the civil rights movement and her song, Strange Fruit, was a big reason for it. Here's Andre Day with Tigress and Tweed. Say, say, say mm, Say, say, say Say a prayer for me Strange fruit come down off that tree Cut it down under your feet Juicy fruit so bittersweet Stand tall, these roots go deep Strange fruit bussin' on these thieves Ancestors don't take defeat Left the scent of Victor B In the air, tigress and tweed Oh, Lanteric, you carry I'm tired, buried The truth of these you Future, you ain't your chariot. Say a prayer for me. Cause I don't get no sleep. Say a prayer for me. Mm, say, say, say. Chariot. But I've been rallying. Truths. Chariots are flaming line behind my mozzie coupe Down moon at these roots They stick to me Big fruit, big vibes Always pressing that line So full of love and light The truth is black and white Say a prayer for me
All right, Village, it's time for this week's, actually our last week's inspirational story. And the title of this story is called The Pear Tree and the Seasons of Life. Here's the story. There once was a man who had four young sons wanting to teach them about the dangers of judging things too rapidly. He decided to send each of them on a journey, one after the other, to a distant pear tree. Each son went in a different season. The first in winter, the second in spring, and so on. At the end of the year, he brought his children together and asked them what they'd seen. The son who traveled in winter described a gnarled, twisted, and barren tree that stood stark and ugly against the land. The son who went in spring disagreed. No, he said, the tree seemed full of hope and promise with green buds along its branches. The third son who traveled in summer disagreed once more. The pear tree he'd seen was covered in beautiful blossom that looked and smelled divine. Finally, the last son who made the journey in fall disagreed again, describing a tree laden with sweet and delicious pears that tasted better than any he'd eaten before. When each son had spoken, the father said, they were all correct because they'd only seen but one season of the pear tree's life. He explained to his sons that it's foolish and impossible to judge something in this manner. The essence of something, whether it's a tree or their fellow man, can only be measured as a whole. At the end of the year, having seen it in its fullness, make your judgment in winter is to miss the promise of spring, the beauty of summer, and the fruit in fall. So what's the moral of the story? Well, refuse to judge yourself, life, or other people based upon a single mistake or challenging time. Refuse to let the pain of one season destroy the joy of those to come. Okay, beautiful people. For this next song, the concept that the artist had in mind was that for love to be affected, it has to be fed. That's what he told Mark Myers, who's the author of Anatomy of a Song. Love by itself, he says, is hollow. He came up with the idea on a cold day in 1974. He was staying at a hotel in New York and captured the chords and bits of lyrics on a tape recorder. He said, I just played and songs sort of happen, he explained. Like a painter, I get my inspiration from experiences that can be painful or beautiful. I always start from a feeling of profound gratitude, you know? He says, quote, only by the grace of God am I here. And I write from there. I think most songwriters are inspired by an inner voice and spirit. God gave me this gift. And this particular song was a message I was supposed to deliver. 
They're from his album, Songs in the Key of Life. Here's Stevie Wonder with Love's in Need. Good morning or evening, friends. Here's your friendly announcer. I have serious news to pass on to everybody. What I'm about to say couldn't mean the world's disaster. Could change your joy and laughter to tears and pain. It's that love in need of love today. Don't delay, send yours in right away. Breaking rain. 
Well, Village, that was my last walk to my musical jukebox for this season. Now, that song 
has held a powerful place in American history. It has been known as a rallying cry, a pledge of unity, a history lesson. And as people gather to fight for equality and justice, it is an ever-present refrain. It was written and composed by the Johnson brothers from Jacksonville, Florida. James Weldon and John Rosamond Johnson worked together their whole lives, first in show business and later in the pursuit of civil rights. They both saw artistic and cultural excellence as a key to black advancement in America. James, who was the elder brother, was a lawyer, diplomat, prolific writer, poet, and the first African-American leader of the NAACP. At the time that he wrote this song, he was the principal of the segregated Stanton School in Jacksonville, Florida. In the following year, it was sung by 500 children at an event celebrating Black history. It has been sung in many African-American churches across the nation, and it has been covered by many celebrities. That was the one and only Kirk Franklin, along with his fantabulous choir. I just love him. And for those of you who may not realize it, it is also known as the Black National Anthem. Well, kings and queens, we have come to the end of another season. Three and a half months have gone by just like that. I have so enjoyed being with you all each week, and I do hope that the information that has been provided was of some help to you. Remember, it is always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life is involved. Thank you again so much for all of your support this season. And I look forward to being with you all again for season four, which will begin in November. I will keep you posted as to the exact date. You can check that out on my social media pages. But until then, I invite you to all go back and listen to previous episodes to tie you over. And before you know it, we'll be together again. We sure will. I'd like to take this time to thank Naomi K. Bondman, who is the CEO and founder of Awaken Lounge, for being gracious enough to allow me space on her platform to get the word of village mentality out there, talking about different topics that can have an impact on our mental health as communities of color. And I would also like to thank Leslie Ramirez, who's the CEO and founder of the House of Ramirez, for curating all of my teasers that you see posted on social media each and every week. Now, please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram at villagementality.ckm as in Mary and on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. You can also catch all episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and Breaker. And there's also a link available for each episode on Instagram at villagementality.ckm and at Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast, as well as the awakenedlounge.com backslash village hyphen mentality. Beautiful people, I just want you to remember that God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's to brighter days.